0: Have you ever tried real cracked pepper? We're not talking diner salt shaker pepper, but pepper with a spectrum of flavor and intensity. It sparks the back of your throat, the inside of your nose, and suddenly your mouth is watering. Experiencing a spice, a fresh spice for the first time can feel like hearing a new genre of music or seeing a new color. Our guest today sources single origin spices from Icelandic kelp to peppercorns in Zanzibar.
1: With spices, I mean, cinnamon is totally different from black pepper, is totally different from cloves, is totally different from saffron and cumin and coriander. And we have to not only be experts in all of those plants, but then also figure out how to position them in a way that makes them familiar enough to a, to a cook, whether a professional or a home cook, um, to, to want to cook with them.
0: We speak with Ethan Frisch of Burlap and Barrel about his devotion to delivering unique flavors direct to your taste buds. I'm Carolyn Kissick.
2: And I'm Colleen King.
0: Thanks for joining us on Sorceress today, where we're throwing the doors on that spice cabinet wide open.
2: Welcome to Sorceress. Welcome to Sorceress. So we went to interview Ethan in his Jackson Heights apartment, which is an incredible neighborhood. I mean, it's now my favorite New York neighborhood by far. And we were trying to find him in this giant building. And you know, these New York City
0: apartment buildings were like, someone's cooking spicy stuff, you know, at noon. And then Ethan walks out of his front door and we realized, no, it's because Ethan has a lot of spices in his house. And we walk into his lovely apartment And there are jars and bags of spices and herbs, you know, all over on these shelves. And uh, he immediately, you know, shows us this blue turmeric that he just, you know, sourced. And we all tried a little bit and it was, like, so bitter and, like, kind of assaulting, but really, really interesting. And then we do the interview and then we wrap it all up with, like, putting our hands in a bag of star anise and chewing on some. And then and then we wrapped up our day in Jackson Heights eating Tibetan food in like an upstairs apartment. It was such an experience from start to finish. And it was almost like he planned it for us. And you and Ethan have, you've known each other for a little while, right?
2: Yeah, I, I reached out to Ethan because I heard about what he was doing and I emailed him and he just emailed me right back. And sometimes you don't know exactly how you're gonna be received when you're reaching out like a cold email. And he was just like, yeah, that's cool, let's get coffee. And he happened to be in San Francisco, um, lives in New York but was was visiting and we just got coffee and talked about the world and he brought me some sample spices and he's not focusing on one country, he's working in multiple areas with lots and lots of small farmers. And he can do that because he ran logistics for uh, Doctors Without Borders. A major part of import and export is logistics. You can find these people. You can work with them. You can find common values. You can have contracts. Those things are difficult. But getting something out of a country that's landlocked is so difficult. And so it's really cool to see him thriving in many, many places. I mean, Zanzibar, Guatemala, Egypt, Spain. He's he's all over.
0: Ethan and I have something in common. Do you know what it is? I don't? (laughs) We were both political science majors in college. There you go. And then I made the joke that neither of us were doing anything to do with political science. And then he was like, no, we absolutely are. And he's right. It's just, it's just funny. I think he's like the third sorcerer that we've met who's a political science major. I think it's really cool that we're all kind of in food and, and beverage and sourcing and that kind of stuff. It's like a different aspect. I wish someone had told me in college, like, this could be something that you could do with politics.
2: So I'm actually going to speak at a classroom (laughs) in a few weeks, What? and I'm going to go tell them all of this is just how to apply it, right? And that's what's so cool is to see people's philosophy applied instead of just writing books and being in this like echo chamber type thing. And so I might actually have them record a little bit. I don't know. There's so many things you can do, right? I
0: think you should. And there are many ways to challenge the system. One would be starting a podcast with someone who agrees with many of your political views and interests. I don't know. know.
2: (laughs) So thank you so much again to Ethan for inviting us into your home. It was so awesome to chat with you.
0: Let's get into the interview.
2: Here we go. I'm sure that there's a lot that goes into making a decision of what kind of ingredient you're going to source next. Because yeah. you've moved pretty quickly. How long have you been in business? A little over two years. A little over two years. And you're doing how many, you said 50 spices? 50.
1: 50 give or, or so. take seasonally. Uh, yeah. Depending on what, what's being harvested at that time.
2: Yeah. And so you worked internationally um, for a while before you started this company. How do you think that experience, I know that you were in Afghanistan and then also along the Syrian border, right? Yeah, Jordan. So how do you think that those experiences uh, informed your ability to be able to start a company that's uniquely positioned? like
1: this. Sure. So I I have kind of a double background in restaurant kitchens and, like you said, in international development. Uh, and my business partner, my co-founder, comes from a marketing and business operations background. We had a, an ice cream business together 10 years ago. We've been good friends for a long time. It was an impact uh, It was an ice activist ice cream cart called Gorilla Ice Cream. All of the flavors were inspired by revolutions and we donated all the profits to a street vendor advocacy organization. It ran for a summer. You know, I, we were 24 years old, 23 years old, something like that. It was, it, it, was, it was an incredible learning experience. It was a lot of fun. It was totally unsustainable. Sure. <laughs> uh, but as an introduction to entrepreneurship, as a, a way to think about food, um, the, the interplay of food and, and politics, food and activism, uh, in that sense, I would say that the ice cream business was, was a failure, we were unsuccessful uh i mean i went into this i had i had been a political science major and was really interested in getting people to think more about international issues and conflict and trying to use you know sort of tongue-in-cheek trying to use ice cream to do that this everybody loves ice cream the most comfortable familiar food on the planet uh and then to have people eat ice cream that's based on an you know, anti-colonial revolution in West Africa, led by Amilcar Cabral, who was this sort of, uh, you know, communist leader in the 60s in, in West Africa in an uprising against the Portuguese. Um, what I found was that people wanted to eat ice cream and they didn't want to talk about politics, <laughs> especially complicated, yeah. uh, controversial topics.
2: I'm sure that it was hard to figure out. Were you trying to have conversations while they were eating it? Yeah, that that was the
1: intention. We actually, we did very well. We were pretty, it was pretty popular. We had long lines. We wound up donating probably about $4,000 by the end of the summer. Thanks. We weren't paying ourselves. We were making the ice cream in a, you know, rented restaurant kitchen overnight when the restaurant was closed. It was miserable. Uh, And ice cream is the absolute worst product to be in in the food business because it melts. You're like, right. You just like if you're cold chain, if you mess up your cold chain, you're done. Uh, so it was a really interesting introduction for me and for Ori uh, into what it, what a, what a, an activist enterprise could look like, what a business with a social impact component built in could look like. I then I went to grad school after that and, and moved to Afghanistan, lived there for a couple of years. Uh, he went to San Francisco and, and uh, started a mortgage startup. Um, and so between the two of us, and especially with my experience as a chef, but then also having lived abroad, that was really where the idea came from. And and we were able to kind of marshal this pretty wonky variety of experiences and skills to, to build a business. The idea came about living in Afghanistan. Uh, there's a variety of wild cumin that grows in the mountains that I had never tasted before. And I had worked in serious restaurants. I had... Um, I had been a cook at, at a restaurant called Tabla, sort of a high-end Indian restaurant under a chef named Floyd Cardoze. Um, so I thought I knew a decent amount about spices. Right. Uh, but then here was a variety of cumin that I had never tasted before, that I didn't know existed, that only grows wild at high altitudes in Central Asia. And I was, I, I, I had this whole world open up. I had never thought about origin. I had never thought about the complexity and the diversity of spices And, and so I started bringing it home initially in duffel bags and sharing it with chefs and industry friends and getting incredibly positive feedback. And, and then it took several years to figure out how to turn that into an actual business rather than just like, here guys, I brought you some, some fun cumin from Afghanistan, which is what I had been doing. Right. Um, and then I think going from Afghanistan to working for Doctors Without Borders, I was, I, I got a job, um, Managing logistics for a maternity clinic that that they were running on the Syrian Jordanian border, um, so then having that experience with logistics, with figuring out how to move usually pretty small quantities of pretty specific things. in In the case of Doctors Without Borders, it was often medications or things like that. How to how to move those things around the world efficiently, um, and so then I came home and said, maybe I could maybe I could turn this into something. Yeah uh and so we started importing it took i should i should say it took about 5 years to go from when i first started bringing stuff home from afghanistan to actually launching the business that we yeah, have about 2012 to 2017 um
2: and then where did you start
1: so i started with cumin from afghanistan started with uh, a, a a friend of mine a former colleague who's from the province where it grows And he and his wife started helping collect it from shepherds who pick it when they're out in the mountains with their sheep um trucking it down through the mountains to Kabul, sending it to new york by dhl it was completely inefficient uh but but it was an amazing product it's still one of our best sellers Um, that's pretty cool and then we added uh, we started working with the cooperative in zanzibar i had been connected with them through a a uh, Tanzanian-American friend working on a coffee project and she had met this co-op that wanted to export and hadn't found an import partner. Um, and that, that has been a, a theme throughout, is that most of the farmers we work with have A, never exported before, but B, have been looking for a way to export. They recognize the flaws in the commodity spice market, and um, selling uh, a, a very low-value product into a complicated supply chain that that adds the, where other people get to take their cut before the farmers do.
2: And is that typically ex- export and import?
1: Yeah, so spices, the commodity spice supply chain uh, starts with usually a very small holder farmer growing a small quantity of, of a particular crop. They sell it unprocessed, meaning often maybe it's dried, maybe it's not. It's not usually sorted. It's not doesn't look the way that you want it to look as a consumer. There's right often there's twigs and feathers and all kinds, of, I mean, farms are, are pretty, uh, you know, there's lots of things happening on farms, right, exactly, yes. and usually spice farmers are, are growing a little bit of the spice that they grow, but then primarily they're subsistence farmers, so um, if you look at the case of cardamom in Guatemala, farmers are growing corn and beans and maybe some fruit trees and raising chickens, and and then they grow a little bit of cardamom, and they sell what they harvest fresh, because it has to be dried in these uh, hot air drying machines uh, it's in the cloud forest it's rainy you can't dry them in the sun uh, and so they sell it to a guy with a truck uh, who's paying I don't know probably less than a dollar a kilo for fresh cardamom um, that truck driver then sells it to somebody with a processing a drying facility that person then sells it up to somebody with a bigger warehouse somebody with a sorting machine somebody with a um, a little warehouse where they can package it in big sacks. That person sells it up to a, a consolidator, an exporter. So it's this pretty complicated process where spices are changing hands.
0: Multiple you know, times, many, even within the many, country. times,
1: even before export, exactly. Right. Um, and where the farmer is selling something for less than a dollar a kilo that's going to sell for, you know, cardamom retail it could be close to $100 a pound. It's uh, depending on the size that you buy it and the grade and all kinds of other things. So... There's, there's this initial inequity in the supply chain, but then beyond that, farmers are not really valued or, or respected for the knowledge that they have, for their expertise, they've been growing this crop usually for their whole lives, several generations, um, and in the grading systems, in understanding diversity or, or different varieties, uh, levels of quality, nobody had ever said, well, I'll just ask a farmer. It's just not, it's a sort of an obvious thing to say, but nobody had ever done that before.
2: Well, and and the, so... the people that set up the grading systems, were they typically colonial powers yeah. that sort of had an interest in terms of exporting and use sort of arbitrary knowledge to be able to set up these systems that are still current?
1: Completely, spices are graded by size. Uh, bigger apples are not tastier apples, but that's how we grade spices. They're graded by color, likewise, not necessarily related to flavor. Um, variety names really don't have often a lot to do with the variety. In peppercorns, you have Malabar peppercorns and Tellicherry peppercorns. All of, all, of Those are different places, but right. all that means, all that indicates in terms of the quality or the grade of the pepper is the diameter of the individual peppercorn. So you could, on the same vine, you could have Malabar and Tellicherry peppercorns growing together they get separated in the sorting process. It doesn't have anything to do with the variety. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of varieties of black pepper. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with how the farmer is processing them, how they're being dried, um, anything about the soil quality, the terroir, the the choices that are being made in the cultivation. Um, so we've, we've built this system that's optimized for scale, it's optimized for consistency, and it completely ignores diversity and, and quality, and that's we're just missing out. We, we as consumers are missing out. Farmers are missing out because they're not, if they're doing something different, if they're doing something special, that work is not being valued because it's just not recognized in the, in the commodity market, in the grading systems. Sure.
2: So what, what would a grading system look like if we were to recreate it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think similar to what's happened in coffee or, or even to look at You know, we're in New York and apples in upstate New York are a good example where people know they like a McCoon apple because it has a certain flavor profile. And um, likewise, I think there's a lot of customer education to be done to say, well, I prefer a Vietnamese black pepper. I prefer a Zanzibar black pepper. I prefer a Southern Indian black pepper. And and then even to think about some of the varieties that are being grown. some black pepper is sort of more savory and mushroomy. Some black pepper is spicier and citrusy. There's there's a lot of diversity in that, and it, especially for an ingredient that we use so much. I mean, imagine the quantities of black pepper that are consumed every day. Most
2: of the time, I encounter black pepper. It's it doesn't even smell or really taste like anything. I think I see people in a diner just putting so much pepper on their eggs, yeah. and it's like you should not have to use very much of that because when I'm using like the Zanzibar black pepper at home, it's like. I mean, it's, like sp- it's intense, it's, yeah, it's spicy. Super spicy, it's leftover. very aromatic, I mean, you have to be very careful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the other problems with the commodity spice supply chain, is that it can take between two and ten years for spices to go through that whole process, farmer to truck driver to processor to dryer to storage. Sometimes that, that delay is intentional, sometimes... People are playing the commodity market. Prices Mm -hmm. go up and go down. And so whether it's a farmer, I've been to pepper farms in Indonesia where farmers have storerooms full of pepper waiting for the price to go up so they can make more money from it. Sure. Um, But the downside of that is that there are spices sitting in a storeroom in a farmer's house in Indonesia for potentially years. Um,
2: But there's no incentive for them to to sell early and fresh. Correct. Because they don't have access to an exporter or an importer that understands that value. Because
1: they have no power... In the current supply chain, they don't have any power to dictate price. To say, "I did this incredible work. I cultivated this special variety. I think it's worth X." They would get laughed. They would get laughed at, laughed out of the room at, at, at by by a commodity buyer who says the price is X, and that's all we're going to pay you. Take it or leave it. And and especially for a smallholder farmer, um, it's the the shifts in the market are very unpredictable, very volatile. Um, Brazil is a huge producer of mostly crappy black pepper, so the weather in Brazil is going to change how much money a, par- a farmer in Indonesia makes.
2: This is so funny because I use Brazil as an example for coffee, okay. where the commodity market is devastatingly low right now. Yeah. It's at like 90 cents. Yeah. Um, and when I try to explain the problems with commodity coffee. The first thing I bring up is Brazil's weather because it would just go up or go down. And and when I was working at this trading house, we would get emails yeah. from people at other trading houses in New York that would say, it's going to rain in Brazil this week, maybe hold or maybe sell. I mean, they're really basing these things on something that's so arbitrary. And it's really about the power of how much product Brazil has, that that could influence the whole market. But then this guy in Indonesia is just sitting on his pepper because of it. It's so silly.
1: Well, and you, at a trading company, have some insight into those weather patterns. A farmer on a little island in Indonesia has no clue. And and it puts that person in a position where they're having to make these kind of life and death decisions about when to sell, how much to grow, um, without, uh, without a whole lot of knowledge. And so you have situations where farmers who've been growing a crop for, for their whole lives have to cut down the whole plot. Clove trees, I've heard several examples of the clove market tanking and farmers cutting down all their clove trees because they just couldn't feed their families on the amount of money that they were making from growing cloves.
2: So will you tell me a little bit how, yeah. how it works exactly? Is it different with, with each place? Because I know you work in, in several areas, several yeah, countries. Yeah, so we're up to
1: almost a dozen countries. Uh, some places we source a single spice, um, and some, other, some countries we source a, an array of spices. In some cases, we work with a single farm. In other cases, we're, we're, we're working with a cooperative or some other kind of association or with a looser network of foragers. A lot of, a lot, a lot of the stuff that I get the most excited about grows wild, um, and so we have wild cumin and wild kelp and wild red juniper and um, yeah I mean those aren't grown on farms in and even the farms that we do work with, hardly any of them look like what you imagine a farm to look like. They're mostly not kind of neat rows of plants, Sure. Um, the co-op in Zanzibar grows cloves and black pepper and cinnamon just kind of in a jungle. It's You walk through the, the forest and Here's a clove tree, and here's a cinnamon tree. Do they
2: they own that plot? They just don't. It's not the what we consider correct farming in the sense of rows, monocrop, or even sort of rotating.
1: Exactly. It's yeah. A, it's a biodynamic environment, and they complain about monkeys eating the cardamom pods, and uh, sure. I mean that's that's just that's just how it works there. Uh, but they also grow really exceptional crops, and I, I, I think it's a there's an overlap, right? Sure. Biodynamic, really interesting growing environments produce really interesting flavors in in the fruits.
2: Right, and probably really healthy plants, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, because huge the soil. clove
1: trees, 100 feet tall. Uh, they also have a really interesting technique with their cinnamon cultivation, where um, commodity cinnamon is usually from a, a, a species called cassia, cassia cinnamon, mm-hmm. and there's several subspecies, and it's more complicated. But um, cassia trees tend to be taller and straighter. Whereas the the what's called true cinnamon, the cinnamomum verum species, which is what they grow in Zanzibar, are smaller trees with more branches. Um, and so they're able to practice this technique where they cut off individual branches coming out of a central trunk rather than cutting down the whole tree, which is the practice in, in commodity cinnamon. You cut down the tree. Interesting. Um, and that's not inherently bad, right? Like trees get cut down for all kinds of uses paper and furniture and all kinds of things, yep. and they also get cut down for cinnamon. Uh, for some reason, people ha- seem to have this emotional response, I say you have to cut down the tree for for cinnamon, and people get upset about that. Are um, these people that are
2: familiar with other agricultural practices? No. Sometimes it's necessary. Right.
1: Right. I mean, it's part of the agricultural process. And I was just visiting some cinnamon farms in Vietnam a few weeks ago, and they, uh, the way that they approach cinnamon as an investment was really interesting. Um, people talked about their cinnamon trees the way that we would talk about a a bank account or something where you buy saplings when they're inexpensive and really small plant them on your land um they mature for 15 to 25 years and when you need a little cash you cut down a tree it's you've got this this investment in the land and in the trees the investment grows the amount of money that those trees are worth grow literally as the trees grow over time and then when you harvest it you uh you got a, a whole bunch of cash that you can build a new house with. Or, or so money do does grow on trees. Exactly. <laughs> In Vietnam, money grows on trees. There's also really interesting, because of the time that it takes for those trees to mature, um, there's a really interesting um, sort of intergenerational process where parents are planting trees that their kids are going to harvest. Wow. Parents will give kids a plot of land with trees on it as a, a wedding gift or something like that.
2: How long does it take to... I don't want to say like bare fruit, but at what point can you harvest?
1: The longer you wait, the better the cinnamon gets because the denser the bark gets, the more concentrated the oils become. Mm. And so so the best trees are, are more than 20 years old.
2: Yeah. Um, and that's specific to, to these varieties in Vietnam.
1: Yeah, specific to the cassia varieties. Although in any tree, any cinnamon tree, the age of the bark is going to matter for flavor, where older bark is going to tend to be a little stronger, a little spicier, and younger bark is going to be... Um, a little sweeter, maybe a little more citrusy or herbal, depending on the species.
2: Do you think we're ever going to get to a point where you can get cinnamon, sort of the way we talk about like wine and whiskey and cheese? You
1: can get cinnamon at a variety of ages on my website. There you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Co-op in Zanzibar, as well as a couple of other I mean, we talked to people about this in Vietnam. We don't, we're not currently stocking anything from them, but this trip was uh, setting up those relationships initially. Um, but the Co-op in Zanzibar separates out the bark based on the age of the branch, so if you buy the ground cinnamon, it's from an older branch, it's gonna be that spicier character. And if you buy the cinnamon shavings, they're really delicate, cut from really young branches, and they're gonna be really citrusy and herbal. What we're doing is introducing people to that whole world of complexity uh, within a pretty wide array of species. You talk about tea, especially tea, you're only talking about one species of plant. Right. Uh, you talk about coffee, you're talking about a couple of species and then lots of varieties within those, but one one plant, more or less. Right. With spices, I mean, cinnamon is totally different from black pepper, is totally different from cloves, is totally different from saffron and cumin and coriander. And uh, I mean, the list, we, we carry about 50 spices, but the list of spices, and then adding herbs onto it, and I don't know how expansive of a definition you wanna take, but it's a pretty long list. And so yeah. we have to not only be experts in all of those plants, but then also figure out how to position them in a way that makes them Familiar enough to a to a cook, whether a professional or a home cook, um, to to want to cook with them. Um, Do
2: you see farmers sort of switching because we're seeing in coffee, you know, especially in the lower elevations, some people are pulling out their trees and they're planting cacao because yeah. it's a little it's more resilient. Do you see people doing that quite often, or is that pretty rare?
1: Um, I mean, we tend to work with farmers who have a who are doing it for more than the money, who have a real passion for what they grow. Uh, those people, I think, are a little more focused on uh, on long term rather than short term. I've I've heard dozens of stories of farmers doing that, uh, farmers um, pulling out pepper vines or cutting down clove trees, things like that, um, to to grow oranges or something fresh that's gonna have that's gonna move a little faster. Uh, but I think we've also seen this shift where certain farmers are starting to understand that that the way that the commodity supply chain begins in spices with smallholder farmers, um, that that those that it can be improved at that point, that they can be growing more resilient varieties. Where most we were just on this trip to Vietnam recently, the um, most of the pepper farmers we met are growing a pretty high yield, pretty low flavor uh, variety. Right. They want it, They get paid on quantity, it's and so they're going to grow quantity. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's not the most interesting pepper. It's not the strongest flavor but the, the vines have pretty significant yields and that's all they want. And they use a lot of pesticides and herbicides. And um, even when something is certified organic, how a certifier is going back, is tracing this funnel-shaped supply chain back to thousands or tens of thousands of small farms, it's, it's really pretty impossible. And they, you know, there's things like pesticide testing that they can use, but um, when you're dealing in huge quantities of pepper, uh, you're optimizing for quantity and that extends all the way back to the beginning and so finally we met these two guys pepper farmers in 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 vietnam who are growing two heirloom varieties of pepper neither of which has the same yields but even pulling the fresh peppercorn off of the vine these tiny little berries yeah the uh the flavor difference was was remarkable immediately obvious um they're growing organically, they're grazing chickens and ducks in between the pepper vines to fertilize the ground. There were butterflies and huge spider webs, and it was like it was a really beautiful environment. Yeah, it sounds um, great. But but they told us that all of their neighbors think they're crazy. And maybe they are crazy, and maybe that's fine. They've never exported before, so we just got some samples from them. When we met them a few weeks ago, the, the pepper wasn't quite ripe. Um, and we're gonna see if we can set them up to export. This is, a lot of what we do is finding these farmers who, these kinds of farmers who um, are looking to grow something different, are looking for an importer to work with, have been dissatisfied with the commodity market and and are looking for a different way to operate. And, And I think even 10 years ago, that wasn't really feasible. But I mean, mostly new communication technology has has yeah. totally changed that. And I'm sure it's similar in coffee.
2: There are people like in pursuit of tea who we talked to yesterday yeah. who have been doing this since you know for for twenty years now. And when they first started, it was so difficult to find these people. How much has technology impacted the ability for you to do your work? Do you think that these people are recognizing that there's this global market and so they're actually seeking seeking you yeah. out as opposed to you having to go and convince people?
1: It's funny you should ask that we are working on bringing in a shipment of a super funky fermented white peppercorn. Cool. uh from Indonesia um the peppers are picked and then when while well, they're still fresh they're tied up in woven sacks and thrown in the river and they sit in the river for two weeks uh, and they ferment you can see them they're staked down so they don't float away they
2: ferment under they water
1: ferment underwater and you can see these columns of bubbles rising up from where they're where the fruit so that the skin of the peppercorn is is a fruit right and the the internal the spicy part of the peppercorn is the pit. And so, yeah, the, the fruit ferments. Um, they're, they're cheesy and savory and, and intense. Um, I, was, I was on this island in Indonesia a few years ago. I had been looking for the funkiest white peppercorn I could possibly find. I love fermented funky flavors in general. Me too. And I got an email. Hello, I am a farmer on the island of Bangka. I found your website. I would like to export. Would you like to work with me? I was like... Buddy, you are not going to believe this, but I'm two hours away from your farm and I'm going to come visit you tomorrow. So, I mean, the coincidence of that was made it particularly remarkable, but now, we, you know, we're, we're booking the shipment. It'll, sure. We'll have it in stock in the next month or something. That, so That's
2: so cool. It's, it's
1: a long process, especially when a farmer has not done this before. Um, and, and we're also asking them to do a fair amount more work in terms of things that have traditionally been done by the, by the brokers. Uh, what would that include? So it's things like sorting, packaging, uh, delivery to the port. Um, often spices are grown in pretty remote areas, and so can they figure out how to get a truck to drive this? Sometimes we can help with that, sometimes they have to do it. Um, we test all of our spices, our incoming spices. There's a, a list of industry standard uh, pathogens that you test for, and so asking the farmer to try to do that testing at Origin, we can also do it here, but I like to ask our partner farmers to do it because I want them to take more ownership over the supply chain to understand like wow actually this spice was a little high on this salmonella count so what can we do what can we do to sterilize this shipment so obviously we're not getting people sick but then also what can we do longer term with next with new harvests to to literally clean up their operation uh, reduce the the possibility of contamination.
2: How many tools do you need for those kind of things? Like, is it pretty easy? Is it like, for example, like a moisture meter? You know, there's ones that are very inexpensive that are that can make a huge difference on the ground in terms of like processing coffee. Are there tools like that yeah. that are really easy to use?
1: Yeah, you can get a little moisture reader. Um, the the pathogen testing needs to be done in a lab. It has to be certified. So, uh, but often those labs exist in in bigger cities. Um, yeah, I, th- I mean, really being able to talk to somebody halfway around the world, using Google Translate if we need to, uh, sending pictures so I know what I'm getting, um, and then sending pictures back of a dish that, that that spice has been used in, a chef who made a dessert with that nutmeg, or a, um, to be able to share that with the farmer. Because that's the other thing, we, as consumers, we don't really think about the farmers who grew our spices. But likewise, farmers don't know anything about where their spices are going. They sell into this commodity supply chain where it's gonna change hands a hundred times. It's gonna be mixed with everybody else's stuff. Anything that was special that they were doing is lost. And and any access that they might have to information about the supply chain after it leaves the farm, just, there's just no chance. So bringing, when we travel, bringing jars back of the of the packaged product to show a farmer to say this is this is how it's winding up this is what it looks like on a grocery store shelf this is this is the end of the thing that you started
2: yeah i remember my first time that that happened it was kind of life-changing yeah
1: yeah it's pretty cool and and farmers who have that orientation already who are looking to to take over more of the supply chain they're looking for for new value-added processes that they can do themselves i've asked this question and gotten pretty much identical answer in a dozen countries and at least a hundred farmers. What do you want to be doing more of? What would what would make a difference to you? And the answer is always, I want to add more value at origin. So sometimes that adding value is something as simple as pulling the the pebbles out of your sack of peppercorns. Sometimes it's um, it's actually packaging. So the the cinnamon leaves, we were able to get the co op in Zanzibar to package the leaves themselves, which means we can pay them quite a bit more for them. Sure. It means that the it sort of this the. the the side effect is that they have to hand sort the leaves to make sure that they're all intact and they look nice and we're not getting broken pieces and there aren't still spider webs stuck to them and things like that sure. uh, which is just sort of what happens when you grow something on a tree in a jungle in Zanzibar um, <laughs> but but then also we can pay them to do something that we don't have to do here
2: for commodity trading of spices are they they're ground in the states i imagine
1: uh, it varies. Um, they're often ground here, uh, but the grinding process can be pretty tricky. Um, you don't want cross-contamination between products. Often, often there's like a communal grinder in a village or something where people will grind chili peppers and cinnamon, and, and you don't want cinnamon that's been ground immediately after chili peppers. So um, making sure that it's being done well. Um, the heat that's generated in the grinding process can actually change the flavor of, of especially a delicate spice like cinnamon. Yeah. Um, the friction of the grinding burns off some of the, the more uh, delicate essential oils.
2: I was just at a market um, in Addis and I bought some, some spices and like when they hand it to me, you know, when the package is warm because yeah. they just ground it yeah. and it's like, I don't... So wonderful, well, and
1: it, it smells amazing. It's so good in that moment. But it all my smells clothes amazing. smelled like yeah, that exactly. when I came back. But one of the reasons it smells amazing is is the oils are evaporating really fast, and mm. so it's going to smell amazing while you have it in your hand right after the grinding process. But it's not going to have the shelf life that that a whole spice would. Mm. And so when you're buying ground spices at the grocery store, you're you're really getting a, a fraction of the flavor that that spice was supposed to have because. Whether they're ground at origin or they're ground here, the supply chain is so slow that by the time you pick up a jar of ground cumin at, at Whole Foods or wherever, um, it's the, the, it was probably harvested two plus years ago and ground, I don't know, a year ago and has been sitting in a glass jar, in a warehouse, in a hot truck, under the sun, under fluorescent lights. It's, not, it's definitely not the ideal environment. Uh, for spices to be stored or transported in and so we're we're trying to take a more expansive view of that supply chain how can how can we control it more tightly how can we make sure that we know every single stop that the spice is taking the warehouses that it's spending time in how it's moving from uh, Indonesia or Zanzibar or Guatemala or India or wherever it is to get here how quickly we can do that um, so to have something within a few months of harvest is is not something that really any other spice company has been able to do. And, and we can do that primarily because of technology, because of communication technology, and, and uh, the ability to coordinate shipments around the world sitting, sitting here.
2: You've dedicated so much time to spices, but if you could be a sorcerer in another industry, like wake up tomorrow and yeah. have all of the knowledge oh, and ability so to things. do that, what would you do?
1: I love honey, I love uh, seaweed. This is something that we've gotten into a little bit. We have a, a kelp from Iceland that I've convinced people they can use like a spice. Nice. <laughs> uh, which works pretty well. Um, but, I mean, in terms of sustainability, obviously it's it's a great crop, but uh, there's a huge amount of, again, diversity in seaweed varieties in terms of flavor. Yeah. Um, and you get seaweed that tastes like licorice, and you get seaweed that tastes like oysters, and you get seaweed that tastes like kale. I, I mean, all these crazy flavors uh, that we mostly ignore or only cook within very specific applications. If you're cooking with seaweed, people assume you're cooking Japanese food, and that's not, sure, I mean, that's great, but there's also a lot of other ways you can use seaweed. Um, and so that's something else we've been working on a little bit. Uh, a, lot of it, a lot of it doesn't taste good, and so we've met with some seaweed-growing cooperatives or, or harvesting operations where the seaweed that they grow is just not that palatable.
2: So what does it taste like when it doesn't taste Great. Because a good seaweed, Um, what does that taste like? It's a little savory. It's a little sweet, salty, briny. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And then this other character, whether it's like Purple Dulse, has this black licorice flavor. Uh, The kelp that we have is very oystery, kind of bright and like sort of essence of the ocean. Uh, Seaweed that doesn't taste good (laughs) uh, can sometimes have sort of an iodine character. Mm. Yeah, that's not good. No, kind of bitter, kind of... um, like like really crappy vodka or something, this like uh, <laughs> sort of chemical gasoline yeah. flavor. Um, Do you think that
2: that's a product of the environment? Is that because of pollution I, or something?
1: I In in your offer, I was going to be an expert in whatever. I, mean, I don't know. Oh, not you don't an know? Expert, right? He doesn't need, know yet. I need, I need, to, need to wake more. up tomorrow. <laughs> right, exactly. I need to wake up tomorrow to be a, an expert in seaweed sourcing. I don't know. And I, the funny thing is, even in spices, even in in more common crops, people don't, often know why certain flavors express in the way that they do and you can taste you go to france and taste wine from one side of the river and the other side of the river and it's going to taste different maybe in wine or coffee it's a little bit more developed people have a sense of soil chemistry or something like that that would express itself in the flavor of the fruit but often they just they just don't know i've met with people who know a whole lot more about spices than i do who i I don't have a an agriculture background or a botany background and so Whatever I've learned, I've learned by reading and by talking to people. And and ultimately, you can ask this question a hundred times and the person, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. And ultimately, the answer is, well, these are all just guesses. We don't really know why sure. a certain flavor expresses in the way that it does.
2: But if it's good, or if you just follow that. Because you know it, it's coming, right. wherever it is, it's coming from place. And that's why land and environment is so special, right? Yeah. Because you know, sometimes there's this area on the hill and that is where the best stuff comes from. Yep. And we don't ask questions. <laughs> right. You just wanna buy it. There are a
1: million different factors that contribute to that flavor and um, it's gonna be different farm to farm, farmer to farmer. Uh, and one of the reasons that I spend so much time traveling is is to learn more about that. To visit one cinnamon farm where they dry the cinnamon on the tree, they don't cut it all the way off and they let it dry on the tree. And another cinnamon farm where they cut down the tree and dry the cinnamon in the sun. Um, Farms that are a couple of miles apart, how those two farmers decided to process their cinnamon in different ways, I have no idea, but but they're gonna taste different. And so l- spending time on farms with farmers, learning more about that complexity is really, really important to what we do.
2: Love it. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
2: Thanks so much to Ethan for taking the time to chat. You can find everything that the guys at Burlap and Barrel are up to at burlapandbarrel.com and on Instagram at burlapandbarrel. Stay tuned for our music segment, where our music curator discusses the cultural and musical history of the region and product discussed in the episode. And if you haven't yet, please leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. We'd love to hear from you.
3: Hey everyone, this is Danielle Maggio, delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. In honor of the diversity of origin countries where our featured ingredient comes from, I want to take a big picture approach and look at how globalization has affected music making and music listening, and ask the question, what exactly is world music? So let's get into it. We've all heard the saying before, music is a universal language. While music scholars have debated whether or not music is in fact a language, the sentiment of the saying holds true. Music is a universal denominator amongst all cultures across all recorded time. It's a global consistency and a highly enjoyable one at that. Music is the intentional way sound is organized in space and time, allowing for infinite possibilities. From the beginning of recorded time, cultures have cultivated musical practices based on their specific regional landscape, languages, religions, customs, beliefs, and so on. This is why the popular music of Detroit sounds different from the popular music of Damascus and why the sacred music of the African diaspora in North America sounds different than the sacred music of the African diaspora in South America. Music scholars often refer to these unique musical systems as soundscapes. Soundscapes can be understood as sonic landscapes that are simultaneously a physical environment and a way of perceiving that environment. They are constantly under construction and always undergoing change. Now, this has always been the case to a certain extent. Just as spices and other commodities traveled ancient trade routes, so too did instruments, songs, and musical techniques. However, by the 1990s, The global flows of technology and communication began to shape our world in ways prior civilizations would never have thought possible. As a result, the soundscapes we now create and enjoy are truly boundless. Just as we can reach into the spice rack and choose from an array of locally sourced spices, so too can we access a variety of musical traditions from around the world. Whether it's curated by prestigious institutions such as Smithsonian Folkways or simply going down a YouTube rabbit hole, pending internet access and a healthy dose of curiosity, we can immerse ourselves in as many soundscapes as we desire. Now maybe you've seen world music compilations at stores that sell tapestries and incense, or perhaps you've seen world music offered as a college course. But what exactly is world music? And isn't all music from the world? As an academic category, world music is a primary topic of study for ethnomusicology, a discipline which studies how music functions within culture. However, what qualified as the world had some regulations. World music began as a Western commercial category to organize non-Western music. This created a binary of Western versus non-Western. Sound familiar? Just as the Western world tends to other people, we also othered music. World music was not established as a commercial category until after Paul Simon of Simon & Garfunkel released his now famous Graceland album in 1987. Paul Simon traveled to South Africa and recorded with local musicians, blending pop, rock, and local South African musical styles. Graceland was an international success and won the Grammy for Best Album of the Year. However, at the time, the album created conflict for distributors who didn't know how to categorize and label this music that blended non-Western and Western styles. So this fresh fusion of global pop set the stage for how non-Western music is marketed, distributed, and consumed in the Western world. And in 1992, the Grammys officially instituted a world music category. Perhaps one of the first world music stars, although that term was not yet in existence, was Ravi Shankar. His hypnotic classical Indian ragas penetrated the Western 1960s counterculture in a big way, grabbing the attention of the Beatles so much so that they began incorporating Shankar's sounds in their own music. This early example of the global flows of music is nothing new. Musical sounds and instruments and techniques have been circulating the globe for as long as there has been trade and travel. But the advent of technology has brought us to a new space and time entirely. One where soundscapes are transformed without the barriers of national borders and where musicians can evolve their traditions into a type of fusion. All of the artists on this week's playlist are from an origin country of one of the single origin spices from our featured sorcerer. There's Indonesia, Iceland, Zanzibar, Tanzania, India, Vietnam, Guatemala, Spain, Turkey, and Afghanistan. All of these songs are rooted in traditional music-making practices from that region, but have evolved by the global flows of world music. From electronic samples of Indonesian gamelan, to avant-garde British post-punk in Iceland, to East African soul-house fusion, to Vietnamese hip-hop, to a mix of Turkish folk and psychedelic rock. Listening to different soundscapes help combat the false binary between the Western and non-Western world. Listening to different soundscapes provides a more nuanced understanding of the global flows that structure both our embodied realities and our imaginations. So go on. Spice up your soundscape. I guarantee you'll like what you hear. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-R-E-S-S. You can also access them through our website at SorceressHQ.com. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress.
0: Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Flatbroke Robot. You can find us online at SorceressHQ.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Sorceress underscore underscore. Until next time, Sorceress fans, stay curious.